So uh, I'll just ask all of you to rise, and I will read the scripture for you, which comes from John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Thank you. You may be seated. In order to understand the significance of Mary's encounter with the risen Christ, we need to backtrack a little into last week's passage and remember what Pastor Adam taught us. And I want us to see exactly what John has given here, because there is a very interesting pattern. And so I would ask you to take your Bibles and open your Bibles past the book of Romans to the book of 1 Corinthians and look at chapter 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us a succinct summary of the core of the gospel. And so we read there, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us the core of the gospel, and he gives in 1 Corinthians 15 the part of the gospel that we need to know and believe if we are to be saved. And so what are the elements of this gospel? Well, in verse 3, Paul begins by saying, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And we see that that accords very closely to what we have in John chapter 19, verses 1 to 37, and particularly um, in verse... Uh, 28 and 30, we see um, uh, the testimony of John that this was what Christ had done in accordance with the scriptures. And so John chapter 19, verse 30 says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The next element of the gospel we have is in verse 4a, that he was buried. And we saw this a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 19, verses 38 to 42, and especially in John 19, 42, we see, so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And then the third element of the gospel, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and we have 
been looking at this in John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18, and in verses 8 and 9, we read this. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And so the reason I wanted you to see this pattern is that in this passage in John, we really have all those elements of the gospel. So what, John, uh, what, what Paul later on will tell us, this is the core of the gospel. These are the things that you need to believe, that you need to know, and if you hold fast to them, you are being saved. And John tells this very thing to us in his gospel. But I want you to notice something else, that John gives far more than what Paul conveys to us succinctly there in John or in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that's because the gospel is much bigger news than just that core, that Jesus died for sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to many. Oh, I'm sorry, there's one more slide. Uh, and so that final element of the gospel, that Jesus appeared to his disciples, both to the 12 and other disciples, and we see that there is a reason for John's testimony. And he is one of those to whom Jesus appeared, and he bears witness to that. And we can go back as well as forward to see this, because John tells us the purpose for which he is giving his entire gospel. In John chapter 19, verse 36, it says, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. And so we know the reason for which John gives this gospel, and we also begin to see why it is that there is so much detail in terms of what John has given. And looking at that last phrase, he is telling the truth that you also may believe. And this points out something very distinctive about the Christian faith. Because Christian faith is an evidential faith. It is a reasonable faith. It is a faith that opens itself up to examination. And this is very distinct about Christianity. If you think about some of the other major world religions, suppose that you were to go to a majority Muslim that country, and you were to question the very tenets of their faith and cast your doubts upon it. How long do you think, or how well do you think people would tolerate that kind of questioning? But Christianity is a faith that invites our examination. Christianity is a faith that it tells us, look, look around you, look at the evidence, see for yourself. Don't believe just because you're being told. Believe because you have seen for yourself. 
And so many times when you go to Christian churches, what you'll hear is that the pastor will say, don't believe this simply because I am telling you. Pastors want their people to have the scriptures open. And we even sort of want, if you think that we're wrong, to come up and maybe not challenge us, but at least ask, how did you come to this interpretation? And what the scriptures also tell us is that, that if you think the pastor is off, well, you have the evidence for yourself. You yourselves are responsible to know and understand the word of the Lord. Of course, God also charges his shepherds to be clear and accurate with his word. But the Christian faith is a faith based upon evidence. And one of the clearest examples that I got of that when I was in seminary was that I had a, a friend who came and we were living in these apartments, these small little apartments called the South Apartments on, on Trinity's campus. And we had roommates who came and they moved just downstairs from us. And we got to know them and they had kids about the same age as our kids at that time. So we got to be pretty good friends. And we found out that they had gotten together in a particular way. And so as oftentimes happens, um, not saying that this is the preferred way of evangelism, but it does seem to happen quite often where um, my friend had met his wife because he'd, or he had come to church because he had met this young lady and was very interested in her, but she was a Christian. And so in order to get to know her, he went to her church. And when going to the church, one of the things he had to do is he had to come to the service and sit through the sermon, which to most non-Christians and sadly, even to many of us Christians, and also sadly, sometimes because of our pastors was, was you know, not, not the most interesting thing to him. <laughs> and so he had plenty of time to do something while he was sitting there. And what was there, the thing that he could do was there was a Bible in the pew in front of him. And so he took that Bible and just leafing through it and he noticed something. He noticed in the back of the Bibles, which many of you have, not in the copies of John that we've given out, but if you've got a Bible, there's maps at the back. And he thought, why do they have maps in the back? And one of the things he began to realize was that Christianity was a faith grounded in historical reality. We have maps in the back of our Bibles because it helps us see where people are going. And the geography of the Bible plays an important role in the development of Scripture. I mean, you, we can see, even see this in, in the book of Matthew as we trace the journeys of the infant Jesus. And so he saw that Christianity was grounded in historical reality, a reality that could be verified. And one of the greatest proofs of Christianity that we have is this very word that's right in front of us. Now, how is it proof? Well, one of the things is remember that the book of John, John's gospel was not originally written to us. It was written to people of his time and his culture. And so if you are writing to people who are in and living at the time of Christ, and in the area in which Christ would have lived, one of the things that they can do is they can check out your story. And so John gives these details for this very reason. Where is Jesus buried? He was buried in a tomb. He was buried in a particular tomb of a wealthy man, one who would have been well known, Joseph of Arimathea. 
And so if you are going to be an early Christian and you're going to have to run against the earthly authorities of your culture and place, and you're in effect, you are committing your life to living according to this faith. And someone tells you there is this Messiah you should believe in, and he was killed, and he was buried in this tomb. One of the things you can do is, well, is he still in that tomb? Because if he's dead and in that tomb, then this faith is not real. Think about what it would have been like for the Pharisees back at that time during that Passover. So here had been this Galilean teacher, and, and, and he has been a thorn in their side. He has been teaching the people and inciting the people against them and, and their religion and undermining their place in society. And finally, this Passover, they could have really come and given thanks to God because that rogue had finally been nailed down, literally, to a cross, crucified, and killed. And no more would he be a thorn in their side, at least for three days. <laughs> but then imagine those same Pharisees when reports begin to come in, first, somehow the guard that they had placed there had been overcome, but without any bloodshed. And the body was gone. And then reports coming in from multiple witnesses. Oh, he's walking around again. He's appearing to his disciples. He's teaching them again. And you begin to see now, they caused a lot of trouble, but you read in the book of Acts that there was a party of Pharisees in the early church because apparently some of them had given up because killing this man was not enough. But if you were one of those religious authorities, if the story was not true, the easiest thing to do to defeat this now exploding religion is just produce the body. And John gives this eyewitness testimony, and he says, I am telling you these things. He who uh, saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. And so the empty tomb here shows that Christianity is a religion grounded in reality. Now, you might say, well, I already believe the gospel, and so what more is there in here for me? Well, one thing is you want a solid foundation for your faith. And so as you continue to examine the evidence in the world and in the scriptures, you will have a more and more solid foundation for your faith. But I want you also to remember what Pastor Adam led us through last week. And he led us through the passage where Peter and John run to the tomb. And you might remember that there were three words that he introduced us to. And so, blepo, orao, theoreo, three different Greek words, meaning to look at or to see. But used in that way, and especially the, the nuance of some of those words, you might think of it as John looked. Peter examined, John saw, 
and believed. And so there's this idea that they are looking at the evidence. In fact, we see that that is what Peter does. He, he, he looks and examines and sees the linen claws, sees them lying there, the face cloth. And, and so John and Peter see these things, and John even records for us details about what happened. The grave clothes were lying in one place. The face cloth, which had covered Jesus' face, in another place. And we see that it says here that John believed. Now, something else very interesting here is that John very obviously doesn't believe the whole gospel. And he tells us that explicitly in verse 9. So let me read to you verses 8 and 9. Then the other disciple, that is John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. Then we have verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Well, if you're sharing the gospel with someone, is that the part that you can leave out? That Jesus rose from the dead? And yet, John here believes without knowing this essential element of the gospel. What does it mean that he believes? So I thought, well, the simple thing to do to see what it is he believes, well, maybe one thing I could do is I could look at that word, the word for belief or faith, bestuo here, and, and just you know, see how is that word used. So I started doing that. Um, <laughs> so it's used a lot in John. <laughs> it's used 101 times. Uh, so it took a little bit longer than I initially thought it would. But what I found is every single time this word for faith or belief is used in the book of John, it is used in connection with Jesus or his words, that they believed his words, or his works. And so unless this hundred and first time departs from the spirit of all the other 100 times, what John believes here is what Jesus, who Jesus is, what he has said, or what he has done. In other words, he trusts, he continues to trust in Jesus as his Messiah. And he could think of someone like Abraham when he was commanded to go and sacrifice Isaac. And the book of Hebrews tells us that he had faith in God, and he knew that through Isaac, his descendants would be numbered. Now, he didn't know how God was going to do this if Isaac was to be offered as a sacrifice, but he reasoned that, well, if I do this, God can raise the dead. And the book of Hebrews tells us, in a sense, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. So Abraham does not know the particulars of how God will work, but he knows God will keep his promise. And I would say that this is the same sense here of, of, of what we see in the Apostle John. He knows Jesus is the Messiah. He does not have a category for a slain, dead Messiah. But he trusts Jesus is my Messiah. And so 
as we look at what is going on here earlier in John, we see some important things, which is that in their coming to faith, the apostles continue to examine, to know their faith, to look at the evidence and have a ground for that faith. And we know that John also, this is not just a descriptive passage that tells us what John and Peter did, which is certainly is a descriptive passage, but to move toward prescription, John does tell us why he tells us these things. And what we see is that John wants us to go through that same process. Don't just take my word for it. Look at the evidence for yourself. Understand what happened and come and believe. And so this is something that we are striving to do in this church. Uh, when Irene and I came to PCC, one of the things that uh, we thought would be one of the most important things to do here is to invite all of you to come on the journey that Irene and I myself have been on uh, throughout the whole time of our marriage, which is really to dive into and wrestle with and know the meaning of the scriptures. And we've been enormously encouraged because we've been in the cell groups and the fellowship groups, and we've seen a transformation starting to happen. And we've been so encouraged by our cell group leaders and our fellowship leaders as they've forced us all in a sense to, to begin really wrestling with the word of God. And this is essential for Christian life. Not being a Christian robot. You can do be a Christian robot without doing this. But to be a Christian living in relationship with God. Because you see, God isn't just whoever we think he is. Now, we live in a relativistic society, a relativistic culture that demands that we affirm whatever an individual thinks. And sadly, Christians have also bought into this kind of thinking. Now, we won't do it when it comes to matter of gender, right? And so if someone wants to think that they're a gender that they're biologically not, we'll say, well, we don't think that's right. But we adopt that same way of thinking when it comes to our Bible studies, right? Well, what, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And, and, and there isn't that sense of, well, that might not be right. You might think that, but it's wrong. Or here's a way to know that what we're thinking is true. I've often heard the ridiculous claim that today's church is the most well-educated church in history. And so what we really need to do is go out with the knowledge that we have and share it with others. And the first part of that statement is dead wrong. Today's church is perhaps the most ignorant church in American history with respect to the very foundations of the Christian faith. And perhaps the reason that many of us are reluctant to share our faith is that we don't know it all that well. Ligonier has a biannual survey of what Christians believe about God. The last survey was concluded in March, um, just about a year ago. And their findings are that there is widespread confusion in the United States about the Bible's teaching, and that evangelicals also seem to be influenced by the culture's uncertainty about what truth is, who Jesus is, 
and how sinners are saved. In other words, evangelicals are confused about the gospel itself. Now, if we are learning to come into relationship with God, if we're learning to love God, that won't be our attitude. When I met my now wife, Irene, um, I met her very briefly. And sadly, I didn't take my best opportunity to get to know her because she was visiting her parents for a few weeks in the summer and she came to my church. And uh, she came to my church, I spoke with her a few times and then she left and that was it, I thought. <laughs> uh, that was not it as it turned out because we began to correspond because Irene was thinking about going to seminary and she wrote to me. And as we corresponded, I started becoming more and more um, wanting to know this young lady more and more and more. But the sad thing was, was that she wasn't there in Minnesota anymore. So I did what many of you would do is I started to stalk her online. I just tried to, <laughs> just tried to find out everything I could. And, and, and this was actually, I think it was pre-Facebook, right? Uh, anyway, she, I couldn't find her through Facebook. Uh, there was no Facebook to look her up on. I looked and I, I Googled, I actually, it wasn't, well, it might've been Google back then, but there were other search engines. I know I, I probably used every search engine there was out there. I finally found her sister's Zanga page. I don't know how many of you remember what Zanga is. Was this like blog sort of thing? And uh, on the Zanga page, you know, she, there was all this, her sister was like eight years younger than her. And that was like, she was really young back then. I actually even read that because I was trying to find out about Irene. okay? Why was I so interested in getting to know her? Well, once I was interested in Irene and I wanted to have a relationship with her, I wanted to know who she was. I wanted to know everything there was to know about her. Now, if I'm doing that for a human wife, what must I do for an eternal God? So, if I want to call myself a Christian, and if I, as your pastor, am not interested in pursuing God and his word, then all I'm doing is I'm using God to make a living. But if I'm really to have this relationship, don't you see, I have to continue doing what John is doing. And John gives us this picture where he believes, but he doesn't even know the whole gospel. And so he must grow in his understanding of who Christ is. And that's what John is inviting us to do throughout our lives, to grow and to know who God is. And it's very important we do this. You might say, why is it important? Once I believe in the gospel, aren't I saved? Well, let me give you one example. Apart entirely from this aspect of knowing and being in relationship with God, Americans do have this predilection for having someone else kind of pre-digest the word of God and write a book about it and, and then read that book. Now, that's not a bad thing to do. Reading helpful and good books about God will be a blessing for many of us in growing to know God better. The problem is, is that when you look at Christian bookstores, 
And oftentimes what sells in Christian bookstores, it's a mess. And in fact, we might even think that they're more full of garbage than help. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14 says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. But how are we going to distinguish? If we are not going to do that hard work to delve into the scriptures and to continue growing in our knowledge of God, well, how are we going to live? We'll live according to the power of positive thinking. And we'll pray the prayer of Jabez. And then when we come to church and we try to think of how we're going to be a church, we'll have a purpose-driven church. And when it turns out that that doesn't work very well, we'll listen to the letters to the church. When I was uh, taking a class with... Uh, I remember coming into a class one day and there was a book that was sitting on the table and it wasn't a book for the class. It just happened to be a book uh, called The Hermeneutical Spiral, which is perhaps the best book on how to read and interpret the Bible. And it was written by one of my professors in Trinity. I, I opened up the cover and there was this little slip in it. It was like one of the things that was like, a, I think it, the professor had left it in there by accident because it was a congratulatory copy to him because it had sold, I think, like either it's 100,000th or 200,000th copy. Now, all four of those books that I just mentioned, which are anti-theological tripe, have outsold the best book on how to read the Bible accurately many times over. And so if we do not train ourselves to distinguish good from evil, we are going to be taking in the garbage of our culture and living that garbage out, thinking that it's Christianity. But there's another part of this that we come to in our passage. Because when we come to verse 11, we see that Mary is standing outside the tomb and she is there weeping. And something very strange happens in this passage, right? There's a number of strange things. Because you realize that Mary, like many of us, is clueless about what's going on here. If I look into a tomb and I see angels in the tomb, I think I might remark on that. It might be an interesting occurrence. I might shake in fear, or I might ask them questions, or I might just stare at them. But I probably wouldn't just look at them, ask them a question, oh, we don't know, or wait, wait, wait what is it? Wom uh, they said, woman, why are you weeping? They've taken my way, my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. So I answer their question, and I turn away. I think, I would have stared at those angels. Well, Mary doesn't, which is good, because she sees someone even better, right? Because Jesus, she turns around and she sees Jesus. But she doesn't recognize him either. Now, what's going on here? In the book of Luke, we have the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't recognize who Jesus is either, but it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Here, it doesn't say anything like that. She simply, it simply says she did not know that it was Jesus. Well, one 
possible explanation. She's been weeping this whole time. She's overcome with grief. She's not paying a lot of attention to what's going on around her. So she doesn't know. But on the other hand, what is Jesus doing here? Now, if it was you or I, and I was in the place of Jesus, we might simply say, well, that's just where Hans happened to be. Mary was the most convenient person, and so he passed on a message through her. But of course, that's not the case for Jesus. Jesus deliberately chooses Mary. He knew when Peter and John were going to be there. But for Peter and John, what he wanted them to do was he wanted them to look at the evidence, go away, and think about it. And what he wanted Mary to be was he wanted Mary to be the very first person to know the gospel. And there are all sorts of very important implications of that. And one of them is this. In that time and culture, if you wanted someone to be a witness to something, you would never choose a woman. Now, our culture doesn't have that kind of wrong assumption, which we can see through this scripture is a wrong assumption that women would not be good witnesses because that's who God chooses. And so one of the things we see here is that God will give us evidence and proof of what it is that we are to believe. But he's not necessarily going to choose to provide that proof in a way that we want to have it. But it will be in a way in which it is reasonable to have it. And so in Mary's time and culture, women would be despised. Women would be looked down upon. And their testimony would not count as evidence in a court of law. But Jesus chooses this person as his very first witness of the gospel. Now, for those of us who might not occupy the highest places in the society and culture, that should be an encouragement. The very first witness to the gospel is a woman. The very first witness to the gospel is someone who culture would have looked down upon. The very first witness to the gospel is someone who society would say, your testimony doesn't count. But Jesus uses this person's witness to begin the most incredible work of transformation, renewal, salvation that we will ever see. And Mary, we see here, is also fairly clueless as to what is going on. And so in this preceding passage, we've talked about how important testimony is and how important it is for us to know the scriptures. And at the same time, by making Mary here the first witness in her state of cluelessness and ignorance, one of the other things that God tells us is that right now, 
with what you know, with what you understand of the gospel, go out. Go out and share that witness. Go out and share that testimony. Go and tell what you have seen. And here also, we see with Mary a very tender moment. And he says to Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so we do live in a world where there is still sorrow, where there still is trouble. And Mary here is the first person to have that assurance. Jesus is alive. I am with you. I'm not dead, but I have been resurrected. And I am returning not just to my father, but now also your father, not just my God, but also your God. And so even as Jesus commands Mary to go out, and even as we are to go out into the world, it doesn't matter if you're young, it doesn't matter if you're uneducated, it doesn't matter if you don't have a high place in society, God will use you and has commissioned you to be the one to share his gospel. But he also has assured you that God is also now your father and you have this relationship with him. You are to come to know him. You are invited to grow in that relationship with him and to be comforted by him and to be with him. And this is what we celebrate when we come to the communion table. Because at the communion table, we have communion with God by partaking of the Son in union with one another. And so communion becomes this picture where Christ now continues his mission in the world, not because he is here personally, but because he now, we now are his body. And so we are his hands and feet. And as we witness, it is Christ who works through us. And as we witness, we're also brought in unity with one another and others who will receive that testimony, which we are to bring, are also brought into union with us. And so let's prepare our hearts, our minds, as we prepare to partake together in communion. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this word by which you reveal yourself to us that we might have a firm foundation for our faith. That we might not just have a foundation for faith, but we might be in a growing relationship with you. That we might be strengthened by you. That we might partake in you. You desire not servants, who do not know what they are doing, but you call us friends because you have revealed your will to us. But you have not accommodated yourself to the world's standards, but you have told us 
in your weakness. I am strong. And so let us come to the table with full assurance of your provision for us, of your love for us, and our union with your Son, Jesus Christ, and with one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.